So anyway, I'm super excited to be here. This is going to be fun. Um, I want to start off by saying that I'm going to take you to places in the scripture. This is my goal where you would begin to understand this reality that God is as near to you as your very breath. Sometimes people say, Ben, how can I get closer to God? And I like to respond, how can you get any closer to a God who's already living inside you? Like you can't get a whole lot closer than that. If you're the temple for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost lives in you, how can you get any closer to a God who lives inside you? Then people say, well, didn't James say, draw nigh to God that he might draw nigh to you? But what James, I believe, was talking about in the context is the idea of repentance. That was the first message of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, to repent doesn't mean you take a flagellum and you give yourself 39 lashes. What repent means in Greek is metanoia. Meta is where we get our word metamorphosis, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Noia means thinking. So neurologists tell us you have 30,000 to 50,000 thoughts every day. Through neuroplasticity, you can actually take your thoughts captive and reframe your cerebral constitution and your psychological gray matter to run in a different direction. So metanoia, repent, literally means to change the way you think. Now, why is it so important to change the way you think? Because the book of Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what you think defines who you are. So no wonder the first message of Jesus was change the way you think. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not far off. It's at hand. So to draw nigh to God that he might draw nigh to you is to change the way you think, have an awareness of his thereness, realize that he's here near and dear, and you cannot get any closer to a God who's already living inside of you. Where can I flee from his presence? If I ascend up to the heavens, he's there. If I dwell in the depths of Sheol, he is there. If I take the wings of the morning, he is there. If I go to to the place of the dead. He is there in the uttermost deeps of the sea. Where can I flee from him? You can't get any closer to a God who's living inside you. It's not a meritocracy where you have to behave to get saved. You just believe and receive because you can't do enough good things to get God, nor can you do enough bad things to lose God because on your worst day with God, you're better off than on your best day without God. And when you're going through your worst, God's planning his best. So it all begins with your thoughts, man. I'm so, so passionate about this. Paul said, put your thoughts on things above. Jesus said, take no thought for the morrow. Isaiah said, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. We only know about two to 8% of how the brain works, but we do know that your brain is a nexus of neurons, 86 to 100 billion interconnected neurons, so complex And I like to remind people, when's the last time you took time to think about what you're thinking about? Because Paul said, I know meditation is like very in vogue in LA among hipsters, but um, meditation is actually originally a biblical idea. So you have Eastern meditation, ancient Eastern meditation is more about emptying your mind. But when the Bible talks about meditation, it's Hebrew meditation, and it's more about filling your mind. So whenever the Bible talks about meditation, it's not necessarily talking about a placidity of nirvana negativism and nothingness. When the Bible talks about meditation, it's always filling your mind with certain things. It's not how can I empty my mind so it's a flat line, but rather what am I filling my mind with? So let's just go over a few. Uh, Joshua 1 says, as you meditate on the law of God and don't turn to the right or to the left, you will have good success. So the meditating is on the law of God, or Psalm 1 echoes that as an echo chamber. It reverberates that idea as you meditate day and night on the law of God, you'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water. 
right? So again, meditate on the law. Uh, again, the book of Psalms says, I will meditate on your wondrous works. It doesn't say I will meditate and levitate and think about nothing. He says, no, I'm specifically going to meditate on how awesome you are. Like, I'm going to meditate on how you've been faithful in my past, so I'm going to be faithful about my future, and I'm going to be fulfilled today. I'm going to meditate on your wondrous works. Then again, Paul, in Philippians 4, 8, would talk about meditation. He would say, meditate on whatever is true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, praiseworthy. So what the Bible is talking about when it refers to meditation is about getting rid of stinking thinking, having a check up from the neck up, and having an attitude of gratitude. Actually, did you know that the shortest verse in the Bible is not Jesus wept? It is in English. So if you've heard the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, that is true in English. But in Greek, that's what the New Testament was written in. The shortest verse in the Bible is when Paul declared rejoice always. Jesus wept is 16 characters in Greek, but rejoice always is 14 characters. If brevity is the wit of genius, then this packs a powerful, palatable, palpable punch as a proverb, like less than 140 characters, 10% of that, 14 characters. It's watch this rejoice always. So it's not just, I stay with Jesus wept. It's I rejoice always. It's you're going through crucifixion, black Friday to Easter egg dying, bunny hopping, Jesus Christ resurrecting Easter Sunday, weeping indoors for a night, but joy comes in the morning and you dance with the scars. I'm stealing your book title. That's what you're doing. A little book plug right there, but be that as it may, we, we really, what I want to do is I want to like change the way you think because what's happening all throughout your day, you're getting bombarded with advertisements. In fact, uh, by the age of 12, the average girl has seen 77,500 ads. Uh, you've probably spent a lot of time on your phone. Again, I, I do. I do all my work from my phone too. Uh, and we spend an average of 14 years on our phone over the lifetime. So uh, you've been on Facebook today. You've seen all kinds of negative comments or the news feed repeating its own. Uh, uh, it actually repeats its own feed every 30 minutes, news stations do. And it leads with bad news because neurologically bad news sticks to the brain like Velcro and good news falls through the brain like water through uh, a sieve. And that's why if you get 10 comments on Instagram, nine are nice, one is mean. You're always thinking about the mean one. So news agencies are aware of this. They'll keep you glued to the screen if they sell sell you bad news. So we just get bad junk in our brain all day. In fact, not just like commercially, but spiritually. The word devil, for example, was initially a judicial term. It was in the context of a court of law. Uh, What the devil does, according to Revelation, is day and night he accuses the brethren. So he's a prosecuting attorney only bringing up your filth. That's what he does all day. It's a judicial term. Devil means accuser or adversary. He's accusing you day and night, and he's filling you not with conviction, but with condemnation. And all through your day, you're getting this junk in your head. So am I. That's why what we're doing is tonight, we're getting a mind cleanse. We are going to meditate on the scriptures. And uh, when we do this, when we metanoia, when we repent, change the way we think, everything changes. Why? Because outlook determines outcome. And when your outlook gets bleak, you should try the uplook. Because if you change the way you look at things, things will actually change the way they look. The problem is never the problem. The problem is my perception about the problem. And my hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than my problem. And when my problem's too big for me, it's just the right size for God. So my praise will be a problem for my problems. 
So we're going to get rid of this stinking thinking. Now, through the scriptures tonight, I want to talk to you about how you cannot get any closer to God. He's inside you. He's with you. He's in you. He's for you. Here's how I know this. Watch this. Not only are you the temple for the Holy Spirit, but the very name of God, the very name of God speaks to his nearness. In the Old Testament, the name for God, does anyone know what the Old Testament name for God is? Say it out loud if you know it. Yahweh, right? Yahweh. Now, when we say the name Yahweh, it sounds like there are vowels, A and E. That's in fact how we spell it in English. But originally, the name Yahweh had no vowels. It only had consonants. That's why it's spelled Y-H-W-H in the Old Testament. This is called the Tetragrammaton. It's called the ineffable. It's called the unspeakable name. Because those consonants, Y-H-W-H, you cannot speak those consonants. They're the only consonants that when you pronounce them correctly, Y-H-W-H, you cannot pronounce it with your tongue, nor can you do so with your lips closed. Because the ancient rabbis teach that the name Yahweh was originally meant to imitate and replicate breath. So it was The name of God was meant to imitate and replicate breath. That's why the consonants YHWH were chosen. I used to think the first word I ever spoke was ball. But actually, the first word I ever spoke was straight out of my mother's womb when I drew my first breath. Now, sometimes I get concerned with what my last words are going to be. Winston Churchill said, I'm bored of it all. Uh, Steve Jobs said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Then he died. I don't want like my last words to be, get me Taco Bell. And then I die because those were my words. <laughs> like when it comes to um, the last words you're ever going to speak, what's the last thing you're ever going to say? <sighs> the name of God. Perhaps you don't die because you stop breathing. Perhaps you die when you can no longer say the name of God. And what I'm trying to tell you is God is as near to you as your very breath. (laughs) He's as close to you as your very breath. So when you ask, where is God? That's like saying, what shape is yellow? It's the wrong category. There was once, as C.H. Spurgeon tells a story, there was once an eight-year-old prodigy who was perspicacious and his sagacity was far beyond his age accounted for, wise little kid. He was known for just his wisdom. One time, a skeptical interlocutor addressed him and approached him and said, son, you're known for answering hard questions with incredible brilliance. Let me ask you this. Where is God? If you can give, if you can tell me where is God, I'll give you an orange. The boy thought about it for a minute and he said, I'll give you two oranges if you can tell me where isn't God. And the young shall lead them, as Isaiah said. 
the truth of the matter is, God is as near to you as your very breath. This is something I'm so, so passionate about you understanding. Um, and we're going to see this in our text, Romans 15, verse 13. Uh, the nearness of God. And we're going to discover how Yahweh, his nature, is that he is the God of hope. This is, to me, like one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because how you perceive God dictates how you receive from God. And uh, this is what Paul tells us about Yahweh. In Romans 15, verse 13, he says, Now may the God of hope, would everyone please say, God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. Everyone say, abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Now here's what's interesting. Um, Paul says that hope comes from the Holy Spirit. In every major language of antiquity, the word for breath and the word for spirit is the same word. So in Hebrew, the word is ruach. When Genesis 1 talks about the spirit of God hovering over the waters, the word is breath or ruach. It can mean spirit or breath. In the New Testament, the word for spirit is pneuma in Greek. Pneuma, remember he talks about the Holy Spirit. We abound in hope by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. Pneuma in Greek can mean spirit or breath. That's why in Acts... When Jesus gave the disciples the Holy Spirit, how did he do it? He breathed on them. He breathed on them. Why? Because God is as near to you as your very breath. Pneuma, ruach, breath, spirit, same word in all the major languages. In fact, Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, the Greek picture that he employed and deployed in that text was literally in Greek. He's using the picture of a baby who's in the arms of a dad and the cute little exhale of a baby when he's contented in the arms of his dad. That's the word for contentment. The phrase godliness with contentment is great gain is the imagery of a child in the arms of his dad <sighs> exhaling satisfied. In the same way, that's how we are. Galatians 4, 6 says God is our Abba. He's our daddy. The Old Testament says we are upheld by his everlasting arm. And Romans 8 says we pray through the spirit with breaths or groanings that cannot be uttered. Some of you are like, I didn't have my prayer time today. Uh, I might argue you were praying without ceasing. All through the day. I'm not making this up. This is like ancient rabbinic stuff. This is what it was intended to be. That's why they chose the continents YHW, consonants YHWH. I love it when atheists are like, there is no God. <laughs> Cognitive dissonance, anyone? So it's important to know that it's the power of the spirit. Spirit can also mean breath. The power of the Holy Ghost that gives us the ability to abound in hope. So I want to, I want to change the way we think. Get rid of that junk and put in our minds hope. God is near, dear, he's here. Now watch this. Understanding theology correctly will change, alter, and transmogrify your reality. So if you see the Lord as the God of hope, you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed people's activity reflects their theology? Like, if people believe God's really mean, like he triple predestines people to hell without them choosing, they tend to be pretty grumpy. <laughs> they tend to be very angry bloggers. If, however, you believe that, you know what? 
ultimate reality, the prime mover, the principle behind which we cannot go, the source of the universe, he is the personification of hope. Inextricably intertwined ultimate reality is the divine Godhead who is named by Paul with this sobriquet moniker, God of hope. Knowing he's the God of hope, what's going to happen? You're going to be a very hopeful person. And I'll tell you why. If you understand that he's the God of hope, you will get a ton more hope in your life. Here's why. Neurologically, this is what CAT scans have shown us. Brain scans have shown us that if you pray to a God you believe is angry at you, you will have high activity in your amygdala. That's the part of your brain responsible for fear, anger, stress, and high blood pressure. If, however, conversely, you pray to a God that you believe loves you, then brain scans, CAT scans have shown us that you develop richer, thicker gray matter in your prefrontal cortex. Now, that's the part of your brain which is responsible for creative thinking, cognitive agency, consciousness, focus, and concentration. Furthermore, if you pray to a God you believe is loving, you have high activity in your anterior cingulate cortex. CAT scans have shown us in experiments. What does that part of your brain do? That's the part of your brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, that is responsible for empathy, compassion, feeling safe with God, and warm and fuzzy feelings. So if you want a serotonin overflow... Pray to a God you believe is loving. And you're going to have more compassion for your fellow featherless bipeds. Why? Why would you have more fellow feeling for other people? Because it's hard to put someone on your hit list who you put on your prayer list. (gasps) Like when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You carry your cross instead of taking up a sword. What happens is you have more compassion for other people. When you pray to a God you believe is loving, you have greater empathy, you have greater focus, you have greater creative thinking, and you have greater concentration. So what you think about God actually shapes your brain in certain directions biologically. So Paul was on to something far ahead of his time. Look again at the text. He starts out verse 13 by saying, you have to understand that he's the God of hope. Okay, so may the God of hope fill you, but then look at what he says at the end, that you may abound in hope. So he uses the word hope twice. One is of God, next is of you, because you image whatever deity you worship. You're in the image of God. So when you see him as the God of hope, that's how you perceive him, you will receive from him a lifestyle of hope. And I love how he says that this God wants to fill you with all joy and peace and believing because he's the God of hope. (laughs) I love it when people are like, are you a glass half empty pessimist or a glass half full optimist? And I say, I don't believe the glass is half full or half empty. Even scientifically, just miscellaneous fact. Did you know that when a glass is half filled with water, technically it's half filled with hydrogen and oxygen and the other half of the glass is filled with nitrogen and oxygen. So I prescribe to what David said, my cup runneth over. So I'm a glass totally full, Godfident, hope trovert. If you can make up words, C.G. Jung, he invented like the introvert, extrovert, binary, and you can just come up with phraseology like optimist, pessimist. I'm going to make up my own stuff. I'm a Godfident, hope trovert. I'm not glass half empty or glass half full. I'm a cup runneth over kind of person. Because even if God doesn't meet my expectations, he's going to exceed them. 
Like, oh, God doesn't meet my, why didn't God meet my expectations? Because if he always met your expectations, how would he exceed them? Unto him who's able to do, Paul said, exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. By the power of who? The Holy Spirit, the pneuma within us. He does above and beyond what we could ask or think. In fact, Isaiah and Paul said, it has never entered into the mind of man, nor into the heart of man. Eye has not seen nor ear heard what the Lord has in store for those who love him. So it's not like if here's an optimist and here's a pessimist, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm like way over there. I believe that the, that the source and force moving the universe through galactic expansion is the God of hope. He's behind the curtain. He's a God who loves you. He is so for you that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And the master of the kingdom would bankrupt the heavens to sell everything he has to become a penniless teacher in Nazareth, to buy you his pearl of great price that he found dirty in a field, washed in the water of his word, then went to the ends of the earth and even across to hang naked on a tree, not to prove that he's mad at you, but that he's madly in love with you, that God so loved the world. Why? Because he's the God of hope. That's who he is. He's the God of hope. Well, there was my intro. <laughs> no, I'm going to hurry. Because um, I want to be sensitive to your time. The mind can only absorb, but the seat can endure. <laughs> hope, 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 hope. I want to get hope in our heads. Oh, he's so near to us. He's inside us. Hope, what is hope? This is what drives me crazy about the word hope. The way we use the word hope today is we think of motivational speakers. Nothing wrong with motivational speakers. We think of the word hope as, well, golly, gosh, I hope Scarlett Johansson asked me on a date. I hope I connect this Hail Mary pass with the ride receiver, even though we don't use deflated footballs. I, I hope... <laughs> I just have to trash talk Tom Brady because he's the best that's ever played the game, so it's out of my jealousy and insecurity that I put him down. But basically... I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get this parking spot. And it's like, well, it's, it's a Hail Mary pass. That's how we use the word hope. And the problem with that word is that it could not be further from the truth of the etymology of what the lingua franca rhetoric and syntax that Paul was employing and deploying. It couldn't be further, further apart from what Paul meant by the word hope. The word hope in the New Testament, in the Greek language, is the Greek word el peace. Would everyone say el peace? The word el peace means joyful, confident, welcome. Would everyone say joyful, confident, welcome. That's the Greek word for hope that Paul uses. Like when Paul talks to Titus about the hope to eternal life, it's not, well, goodness, I hope one day we'll live forever. No, it's the joyful, confident, welcome that is the threshold across which eternity comes into our lives. So hope in the Bible is, as um, you know, I'm sure you've been taught, is the absolute expectation of coming good. Hope in the Bible is the looking forward to the future, saving acts of God predicated upon the foundation of the salvation that he's already wrought in the past. So hope in the Bible is I am absolutely confident that good is coming. That Romans 8.32, if God did not spare his only son, will he not also with him freely give, give us all things? That's hope in the Bible. Let's, let's, let's break these down. Let's really dive deep into this text. The God of hope, the word hope, El peace. What is El peace? Joyful, confident, welcome. Let's break these down. Number one, joyful. Now that goes with our text. 
Because Paul says this God of El Peace, this God of joyful, confident welcome wants to fill you with joy and peace. So, okay, number one, it means joyful. We need, as a generation, more joy. (laughs) We need more joy. Like the average kid laughs 200 200 to 400 times every day. Do you know how much the average adult laughs? 13 to 17. 13 to 17 times per day. That's how much the average adult laughs. The average kid laughs 200 to 400 times per day. Now, I am not a rocket scientist. I got a 2.0 grade point average because my teachers didn't know how to teach a creative genius. I'm joking. That was a joke. But I'm actually dead serious about the 2.0 part. I really got a 2.0. I don't have an alphabet after my name and I don't have as many degrees as a thermometer. But it does not take a rocket scientist to understand that if the average kid is laughing 100 times a day and the average adult is laughing 15 times a day, then maybe we're getting less joy the older we become. And maybe Jesus was on to something when he taught a little Peter pandemonium. And he said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you must become as a child. Why? Because Paul in the book of Romans declared that the kingdom of God is neither meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Ghost. Where joy in the Holy Ghost is, there is the kingdom. Children have joy. If you want to enter the kingdom, Jesus said, you must become as a child. So when you laugh, it's funny, the Bible talks a lot about laughter. Did you know one of the attributes and characteristics that God has that's not often mentioned is that one of God's character attributes is his laughter. Martin Luther said, if there's not laughing in heaven, I don't want to go there. Martin Luther also said, uh, you have as much faith as you have laughter. So like, for example, Psalm 2 verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Psalm 37, 12 through 14 says the wicked gnash their teeth against the just and plot against them, but the Lord laughs because he knows their end. What does that mean? When you have enemies, God thinks it's hilarious and starts cracking up because he knows that he's betting on a fixed fight. You do not want to pick a fight with him. So listen, when people pick a fight with me, God thinks it's funny. Why? Because God never takes me deeper to drown me. He just knows my enemies can't swim. Ask the Egyptian charioteers. There's this great verse in Psalm 114 where it says, our enemies are under our feet. It's the bride of Christ, it's the feet of Christ. Our enemies are under our feet, the book of Psalms says. So if you want to say something to your enemy, you better write it on your sneakers because he's under your feet. Oh, Ben, but I have people talking about me behind my back. Well, they're behind you for a reason. Tigers don't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. Your haters are your motivators. You don't have to be all riled up about your enemies. You can just love your enemies. Throw kindness around like confetti. Love indiscriminately. God gives rain and sun to the just and the unjust. Love everybody. (laughs) That's how you're known as his disciples, by your love for one another. So when people fight against you, God actually laughs. That's what Psalm 2 verse 4 and Psalm 37, 12 through 14 teaches. The God of hope is filled with laughter. And so we should be too. Psalm 126 verse 3 says, Then was our mouth filled with laughter, for they said among the nations, The Lord hath done great things. Proverbs 31 says the virtuous woman, this is one of my favorite verses also, laughs without fear of the future. (laughs) Laughs without fear of the future. 
So too, um, we should be joyful. I, I remember we were filming this scene for our TV show in France. Me and my friends, we like to do like crazy adventurous stuff. So we went to this dilapidated building in the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, we were doing like, I was doing front flips. My friend Sean was doing back flips off this building into the sea. Well, after I got tired out, I just like went to the sand and was laying on the sand. And my friend Sean comes in a few minutes later and he's like hobbling to shore, just cracking up, just laughing, so joyful. I'm like, Sean, why are you limping and why are you laughing? He's like, I just got stung by a jellyfish. And I said, Sean, jellyfish things can be lethal. You could die in an hour. He said, I know. I said, so why are you laughing? He said, because if I have an hour left to live, I might as well enjoy where I'm at on the way to where I'm going. So I'm going to enjoy the rest of my life. (laughs) And he couldn't stop laughing. Sure enough, an hour later, he was totally okay. But do any of you guys have a friend who laughs funnier than he jokes? That's Sean. Like everyone handles stress in different ways. Some people throw stuff. Sean laughs. Like when he's stressed, he, he can't stop laughing, which is awesome. Unless you're at a funeral, it gets a little awkward. But besides that, he just is filled with laughter. And here's the thing. He was totally fine an hour later. Now, I'm not trying to make some absurd psychosomatic connection here, but I do think it's interesting that the book of Proverbs says a merry heart does good like medicine. And a broken spirit rots the bones. And now medical science is confirming that at least 75% of the illnesses that plague us today are a direct result of thought life. Two of the typical diseases of modern life, the coronary thrombosis and stomach ulcers, are often the result of stress. And the Bible is teaching that, that a broken spirit rots your bones. What does that mean? Your spirit affects your body. And a merry heart, joy in your heart works like medicine. And now science is confirming what Solomon said thousands of years ago. When you laugh, you release neuropeptides in your body, which strengthens your immune system. When you laugh a hundred, when you laugh a hundred times, it has the same effect on your body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes. So if you want better abs, laugh at my jokes. I'm just saying. (laughs) Did you know that when you laugh, it's scientifically proven that people who laugh more live longer and people who are depressed get colds more frequently than non-depressed people. Count it all joy. Laugh. El peace. The God of hope. Filling you with joy and peace. The word means joyful. We need more joy. And the kind of joy I'm talking about is not this pharisaic, well, brother, I have a deep joy in the seat of my heart, but it's like you look like you're depressed. No, joy means joy. <laughs> like it means what you think it means. It's joy. But here's what I'm going to say. Your circumstances cannot take away your joy. Rather, your joy will dictate your circumstances. I'm just going to share my heart for a sec. The joy that I'm talking to you about, I really believe in. I really believe in the God of hope. I really believe in Yahweh. This God is as near as my very breath. But here's what I need to tell you. This does not mean life is going to be easy. For me, like, I don't know if any, if you guys are aware of this, but like my brother has just been diagnosed with colon cancer. They've given him a few weeks left to live. And my sister already died in a car accident. And my dad's first wife died in a car accident. 
A couple years ago, I went through a romantic heartbreak that literally left me shattered emotionally. And then on top of that, I went through 10 years of chronic depression. That's why I'm so passionate about this because I know I'm not an anomalous, isolated incident. In the world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But he went on to say, be of good cheer. Why? How can you say be of good cheer when you have tribulation in the world? Because he said, I have overcome the world. What he's saying is, you have one on your team who's braver than Batman, stronger than Superman, more indomitable than Iron Man, more audacious than Ant-Man. He's the son of man, Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I can do all things through Christ. And what was the context? He was saying, I can be hungry. I can be full. I can be naked. I can be clothed. I can be in prison. I can be free. I can experience the famine and the sword, or I can experience happiness and wealth. No matter what I'm going through, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it was in the context of even going through hard stuff. And here's the deal. We consume more pills due to anxiety and depression than the rest of the earth combined by three times over. As Americans. Antidepressants are the number one best-selling prescribed pharmaceutical medication. We live in a nation built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, yet we're stressed, depressed, distressed, and in debt. Over a trillion dollars to China. We, we as a generation are losing hope. That's why I wake up in the morning. I wake up in the morning to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God and then go spread that joy to others. Very simple. And to tell people about the God of hope. Number two, not only is it joyful, number two, it is confident. The book of Hebrews, so number one, it's joyful. Number two, everyone say it with me, confident. Confident. Okay, so number two, it's confident. The book of Hebrews says, because we have this hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. This hope makes us bold, Hebrews says. This hope makes us confident. The Old Testament was, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. The New Testament is, Luke 15, the father gives the prodigal shoes for his feet because he's now worthy to stand as a son in Abba's presence. The Old Testament law was, make no graven images of me. But the Garden of Eden is, God's already made images of himself. You and me were made in the image of God. So why would we make graven images? We are his images. The Old Testament was, you can't go behind the temple veil on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, unless you're a great high priest like the son of Aaron. Because there's a temple veil separating you from God. The New Testament is, Jesus tears the temple veil on the cross, not to get you into the presence, but to get the presence into you. The Old Testament was that the, the, the sheep died for the sins of the shepherd to point to the New Testament where the good shepherd dies for the sins of the sheep. So the Old Testament's pointing us to the new. And what this is teaching us is a confidence that we thought was never possible because now we come boldly to a throne of grace to find mercy and help when? In time of need. When we don't have hope, when there's garbage in our heads, that's when We come boldly to the throne. It's confident, confident, confident. I see a lot of young people here. Uh, Have you guys ever read Kanye West's tweets? Unbelievable. I don't really do Twitter. I do Instagram more. But my friend, Brighton, he read to me Kanye West's tweets. Unbelievable. He literally tweeted, not to an individual, to planet Earth, okay? Just FYI, he, he tweeted this to the world. He said, 
you may be talented, but you're not Kanye West. He literally tweeted, I wish I had a friend like me. He literally said, I may not be tall and skinny, but I'll settle for being the greatest artist of all time as a consolation. <laughs> this, this last one's my favorite. He said, I believe in surrounding myself with winners. That's why I need a room full of mirrors. <laughs> okay. When I think of somebody who's sure of himself, Kanye West is at the top of the list. But you know who would give Kanye a run for his Yeezys? Was Moses. <gasps> Watch this. Numbers 12.3 says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Who wrote that? Moses. <laughs> At least traditionally, traditionally that book is ascribed to Moses. Moses, Numbers 12.3, was the most humble man on the face of the earth, writes Moses. And what's more, he writes it in third person. Like athletes and rappers refer to themselves in the third person. Like it'd be one thing if I'm like, guys, I'm the most humble guy ever. But if I said, guys, Ben Corson is the most humble guy ever, you'd be like, that kind of belies its own case and betrays its own, you know, paradoxical argument. Here's the reality. Why did Moses say that? That makes me rethink what humility is. Is humility walking around like Eeyore saying, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, why don't I just go eat worms? I'm a piece of trash, current mood? Or is the most, <laughs> is the most humble thing you can do is to be like Moses and say, regardless of what I think about myself, if God tells me to write that Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth, I don't care how it comes across. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write down my confidence. Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth, writes Moses. Because if that's what God tells me to write, who am I to disagree with God? And maybe we need to stop walking around saying, I'm a piece of garbage because Jesus thinks you're worth his blood. He thinks you're worth dying for. So maybe the most humble thing we could do is to be confident and agree with God, regardless of what we think about ourselves, regardless of what we feel. The most humble thing you can do is speak, like Moses, over your life, what God says over you. So God says you're the head, not the tail. God says you're above, not beneath. God says you're a mago day. God says you're made in his likeness. God says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God says all your days are written in his book. Malachi 3.17, you are his jewel. The gospel, you are his pearl of great price. Ephesians 2.10, you are his masterpiece in Greek poema. It means you're his poem. You are kings and priests. And Revelation 3 says you're going to sit with Jesus on his throne as you overcome by faith. First John, Psalm 8 says you are crowned with glory and honor. So maybe that's what you should start saying over your life. <laughs> I mean, hope is confident. Hope is confident. And lastly, this hope is the welcome by which we introduce the miracles of God into our life. Joyful, confident welcome. That's the word peace in Greek. Joyful, confident welcome. So what I'm going to do as we close, I'm going to take this a little different direction. I want to just speak over you the main thing that gave me hope. How, like people, the, the number one question I get asked more than anything is how did you overcome depression? And what I want to share with you is one of the main things that God used to help me overcome depression. Uh, real quick, look at verse four. Would you look up at your text in verse four? This is huge hermeneutics. In verse four, because this will set up my conclusion. In verse four, it says, now these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning 
that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have, what does he say? Hope. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors. Scholars debate between 13 and 14 of those books were written by Paul. Paul often wrote from prison. He got canned more than tuna. He said, I'm in prison more frequently than any of you. He was in the wrong place for doing the right thing. And even when he was going through prison, he would say things like, rejoice always. Paul says in verse four, this verse to me is one of the most important verses to my own heart because Paul says the scriptures were written to give you hope. This is not some theologian saying it. This is not some speaker saying it. It's not even a pastor saying it. It's literally Paul, the most prolific author of the New Testament saying the reason we wrote the Bible was to give you hope. So if you don't fly 30,000 feet up, And you get discouraged when you read a Bible study. It's a giant exercise in missing the point. Because if we walk away with blues rather than good news, if we walk away with mope rather than hope, we've missed the entire message. Paul says, no, the scriptures were written for the express teleologic purpose of giving you hope. That is Pauline hermeneutic theology 101. So when you understand the scriptures were written to give you hope, suddenly you realize we have enough Eeyores. We need some more tickers. We have enough people who tell it like it is. We need some more people who tell it like it can be. We have enough people who say you're going to die soon. We need some more people who tell us you ain't dead yet. So like the scriptures, the scriptures, Paul says, give us hope. And so what I'm going to close with is I'm just going to speak over you the scriptures, which do what? Verse four tells us, gives us hope. Why? So that we perceive God as the God of hope. What will that do? Well, verse 13 closes by telling us that we may abound in hope because how we perceive God dictates how we receive from God. So how can we change our mind about Yahweh and realize that he's as close to us as our very breath, as the God of hope inhabits us? How do we abound in hope? By the power of the Holy Spirit. He told us in verse four, you get hope by reading the scriptures. So what I'm going to do, is I'm just going to speak over your life the scriptures and the promises of God that will give you hope. This is one of the chief things that God used to help me overcome depression. It's the promises of God. I say a lot of dumb stuff, but his word never returns void. So what I want to do is I just want to close by speaking over you the promises. Do you guys have like a few more minutes to do this real quick? Okay, then I'll close with this. The Bible says straight from scripture, you go from glory to glory, Grace to grace, strength to strength. As your days are, so shall your strength be. He turns your sorrow into joy, your mourning into dancing, puts off your sackcloth and girds you with gladness, gives you the garments of praise in exchange for the spirit of heaviness. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. If you sow in tears, you will reap in joy. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, for they said among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, for the Lord can save by many or by few. Is his arm too short that it cannot save? Is his ear too dull that it cannot hear? Thou shalt be the head, not the tail. Thou shalt be above, not beneath. Be still and know that I am God, for I will be exalted among the nations. As you meditate day and night on the law of God, you will be like a tree planted by rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in your seasons, that your leaf will not wither, and whatever you do will prosper." Psalm 20, may the Lord grant you the desires of your heart. Psalm 21, 2, the Lord has given me the desire of my heart. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 145, 19, he will fulfill the desire 
of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. Proverbs 10.24, the desire of the righteous will be granted. Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Psalm 3.6, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me on all sides. For the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Even if my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. For many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord your God is a sun and shield. He will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Happy are those people whose God is the Lord, whose hope is in the God of Jacob, whose help comes from the Lord, who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. The Lord is nigh to the brokenhearted and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. He healeth the brokenhearted and bindeth up their wounds. So trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. For the path of the just is like the shining sun, shining ever brighter unto the perfect day. Commit your work to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Even if I sit in darkness, then the Lord will be a light unto me. If you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you go through the waters, they will not flood you. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. No weapon formed against you will prosper. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, mighty in God, to the pulling down of strongholds. The Lord your God is a warrior. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rest in his love. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rejoice over thee with singing. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ending of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you because God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Now these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought my feet out of the pit, out of the miry clay. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. After Abraham patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. 
As Paul said, we might be hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We might be perplexed, but we are not in despair. We might be persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We might be struck down, but we are not destroyed. Because the God who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what the Lord has in store for those who love him. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask him and think, according to the power that is at work within us, God cannot lie, and all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. Come on. That's how we think. That's how we think. That's what gives us hope. His word never returns void. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for for being the God of hope. El peace. Not just this airy-fairy, wishy-washy, happy-clappy, hunky-dory, pie-in-the-sky, everything's going to be fluffy and a-okay. Because, Lord, we know life is not always unicorns shooting rainbows out of their eyes. We know that life doesn't just rain jelly beans and Skittles. We know that as we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, as Paul said, we're going to suffer persecution. We know in this world we will have tribulation, but we choose to be of good cheer. Because you have overcome the world. You didn't overcome earth by bathing the world in the blood of your enemies. You conquered the earth by bathing your enemies in this world with your own blood. And so I pray that we would go through our life as hope dealers. Lord, our country has enough dope dealers. We need some more hope dealers. Yes, Jesus. <laughs> oh, you're so good. Yes. Everywhere we go, help us to spread hope galore. Help us to dole out hope galore. Help us to be known as children of our most high God who image the almighty personification of hope himself. And I pray that you would just comfort the afflicted tonight. I pray that you would remind everyone here that everything's going to be okay in the end. You wipe away all tears from our eyes. Thank you, Jesus. Everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. Remind us that it's okay if we're not okay. It's just not okay if we stay that way. Help us to count it all joy. Help us to meditate on your wondrous works. You're so good. You're so good. You're so good. We love you, Lord. We might go through hell, but we're not going to smell like smoke. (laughs) You're with us. You're for us. You're in us. You love us. Your loving kindness is better than life. And you loved us to death. You proved it on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and sing. Thank you for letting me hang out with you guys and spend the evening just encouraging you guys. I just feel like my whole calling in life is to be Barnabas and I just like to be a son of comfort and I I really, uh, just as we prayed, I pray that comfort would be upon you.